Welcome to today's Together Talks podcast. I'm very, very uh, privileged and proud to say that we've got Professor Sunetra Gupta with us today. Welcome to Together Talks podcast. Um, Sunetra Gupta, as many of you will know, is a professor of theoretical epidemiology uh, at the University of Oxford and also the zoology department and is a multi-award winner and internationally recognised for the work you know, you've done on a range of different infectious diseases uh, over the years. Uh, I suppose, uh, you know, just to start off, um, pre-COVID and everything that had happened, just, I mean, just talk, if you could talk a little bit, just tell me a bit about the experience of the kind of work you did and how things were, perhaps in the kind of way of looking at what changed and was different with what ensued when COVID happened? So, you know, in terms of the work you would normally do and, and, and engage with. Well, in, in some senses, what happened fit right into what I normally do. Um, and there are two aspects of that. One is to try and understand how infectious diseases establish, propagate within populations and how they evolve. Some of them diversify as we've seen with SARS-CoV-2, and some of them don't, like measles, for example. Um, so most of my uh, sort of career has been devoted to, to, to trying to understand how and why certain pathogens will do that. They'll sort of break out into, or keep changing into different strains, and others don't. And then... So that's the sort of theoretical backbone of what I do and into which, of course, um, this new pandemic fits very nicely. And the other, uh, but, but that's not all I do, even though my title is of theoretical epidemiology, um, because some of these theories have actually given rise to new ideas for how to um, make vaccines or to predict the effects of vaccines. And one of my biggest project, my main projects right now, is to try and develop a universal flu vaccine. And that's based on the theory which predicted a new way of vaccinating against flu. Um, and that's one of the things I'm doing now. And interestingly, some of those laboratory techniques were very useful to us in trying to understand two very important questions about COVID, which is how far had it already spread at the time that lockdowns were instituted? Um, and also, to what extent does exposure to other coronaviruses protect you from either symptomatic illness, severe disease, death, or even infection? So I'm a layman, and if you're, I've, I often have talked much about the civil rights implications of policies rather than really understanding much about science or the statistics. And I think that's the case for many people. So we're, and in a, in a sort of advanced technological society, that's often the case, right? You kind of rely on some experts for their insights, for specifics on science, but then there's policy decisions, right? And they're two different things. And the policy decisions are often about what one decides to do about something. But it seems like with, with, what, so I'm going to ask you a few silly questions, right? Just because many people often post on our things. And mm -hmm. So, I mean, firstly, 
the, the flu vaccine that you talk about, I mean, it changes every year, right, the strain of flu. Is that right? And Not every year, but yes. Quite. Every three or four years. Yes. So how does one then have something, as you just described, that could be a generic one, or does that change all the time as... So, so, I mean, to talk about the flu, first of all, can I say, I think most of these scientific concepts are actually readily accessible to anyone who is willing to put the time in to understand them. And that's not a lot of time either. Okay. I think it's just, a, a, I mean, there are things in science which are impossible to understand, like string theory and, you know, even theory of relativity. You know, those things are, are difficult. Some of these concepts, while they may be hard to derive or to, um, you know, to elucidate at their first principles, to communicate them should not be that difficult. And I don't, I think, I believe, I believe that people are capable of understanding a lot. Right. And I think that that's really one of the big problems is that the people have been told they won't understand this stuff and just to listen to yeah. what we know to be true. And that's not, I really don't think that's true. And Okay, well, that's a very well-made point. So let's get into let's it. Let's go back to the flu vaccine. Yes, we'll add to that. And then I'd like to ask you, yeah, what, what's different with COVID? But with the flu, how does that work then? In okay, so the, with the flu vaccine, the scientists, the scientific, the dogma at the time, we published a paper 15 years ago, which went against the dogma. Um, and the dogma was that flu had this kind of unlimited capacity to change. You mentioned that it changes regularly. And the idea uh, at that time, and to which many people still adhere, is that it has this, if you like, I use this wardrobe analogy, an unlimited wardrobe in which, you know, the, the elements of that wardrobe are what flu presents to the immune system. So that's how we recognize flu. We say, aha, uh -huh, it's wearing a red coat and a red hat, blah, blah. Um, and then it goes away and changes the coat and the hat. And, and what is this now? Um, can't recognize it anymore. So that's the fundamental idea. And the thinking in 15 years ago was that this was unlimited. It could just go and pick another. Every time we took stock of what it was wearing this time, it would go and pick another outfit. And what our mathematical model suggested was that that was not true, that in that wardrobe, there were elements that were highly of highly visible clothing, let's say the jackets, of which flu only had four colors, okay. which went against the grain, but uh, first of all, immediately suggested one way that you could vaccinate against flu is to make a vaccine that allows you to recognize all four of those jackets. Um, but then the question was, was it true? And then we spent a long time investigating that, testing that hypothesis, um, coming up and then finding those four jackets, uh, which we then, we, we have now successfully patented and are now, um, trying to make into a proper thing that goes into people's hearts. Yeah. So, I mean, on the question, so let's come into how what has happened with COVID. And just to say, to begin with, you're one of the co-founders and the principals behind the Great Barrington Declaration, which was um, uh, a declaration that was signed by, I think, 
thousands or tens of thousands of people in the medical community and hundreds of thousands, nearing a million mark of citizens around the world. Uh, so it was a very significant declaration that talked about shielding and some very specific um, ways to do policy, not because you were down the pub and you suddenly thought this would, might be a fun thing to do, but because of your expertise, along with uh, Martin Kulduff and Jay Bhattacharya, uh, in terms of uh, understanding how pandemics can work and what this particular specific cars um, to uh, SARS COVID two uh, respiratory condition was, and um, despite its popularity and your international standing, it was vilified by some. It's become clear now through some freedom of information and, and recognition of some emails from some very high up people uh, that there was an attempt to smear and silence that. Now, just from the point of view of being a scientist and academic and someone who's involved in having an impact on the world, how did that sit? I mean, what did that feel like? It was just astonishing. It was absolutely incredible because, you know, what we were saying was not against some you know, very abstruse new thinking. We weren't saying, actually, this is a virus which does something that no other virus has ever done. That's our hypothesis. Um, what we were saying was, first of all, something you've just said, which is that, you know, in, in terms of dealing with this virus, we need to know its biology, um, obviously. Um, but that's not, that's only one part of the multidimensional process of coming up with a clear policy, a solid, a, a robust policy. And we felt that the policy of shielding vulnerable people was robust to many things we didn't know, which is uh, how far had it already spread through populations? How was it going to evolve? We didn't really know at the time. I had some guesses, which I think are closer to what actually happened than um, those who thought that lockdowns were keeping it under control. Um, so there was some uncertainty there. As I said, there, there was a lot of uncertainty about whether lockdowns could or would keep it under control and to what end. And there was one thing about which there was no uncertainty, which is that lockdowns would cause enormous damage, enormous harm. Right. So under those circumstances, you have to come up with a policy that does not advocate or does not um, ask for a complete lockdown of society. So in the circumstances where it is possible, it seemed that the most the only logical solution was to lock down, not to lock down, but to protect and shield and provide what was necessary for people who are vulnerable to protect themselves from infection as long as possible. And of course, it was in the care homes and hospitals and with the most vulnerable section that we saw it spread so much and have so much damage uh, proportionately. And there was reluctance to talk about the lack of relative risk to younger people. There was all, you know, in a society where we'd often talked about obesity for quite mm -hmm. a long time, all of a sudden no one talked about obesity anymore. Mm. I wonder, from you having had experience seeing how policy works, but also how science and research works and having seen that in the past, and why do you think that the, for instance, the decision was made to go with uh, modeling and suggestions by people like um, Neil Ferguson of Imperial College versus other approaches? I mean, we had a pandemic strategy before, it was jettisoned, 
What, what, from what, how you were looking at things from your vantage point, what was happening? Well, um, I, you know, Neil Ferguson and I and many others, in fact, you know, I know practically everyone who was involved in all this. And we all came out of a, um, the same stable, if you like, um, which was set up by Roy Anderson and Bob May, who were pioneered the use of mathematical models to understand infectious disease. And... Uh, there was a point where we started to diverge in what we did. So in my case, I felt it was more important to use mathematical models to understand some basic biological qualitative principles, which then, of course, have an important translational you know, effect, as, as the flu vaccine work demonstrates. Uh, whereas they became more interested in coming up with these complicated models that could help forecast what was going to happen during pandemics. And I, or epidemics, or, or you know, generally, uh, to be used as a policy tool. And I've always felt that actually the best way to form policy is by having the frameworks available so you know how this might spread. Um, and then just taking that into account and then coming up with the most logical solution that causes least harm across the whole population. So I've, I've never been a big fan of large predictive models. I think they are, uh, they have a lot of problems uh, associated with them. And I say this with great respect and, and someone like Neil Ferguson will know that I mean no, you know, disrespect towards him. It's just difference of philosophy. And we know that and we've never had, you know, uh, he's never, sort of knowingly anyway, um, said all the terrible things that some of these other people were saying. Um, so obviously that, that's bound to happen in science. You have a divergence of philosophy. Um, but I did write in, in you know, Nature in 2001 about how my, about my misgivings about using these very complex models to make predictions about disease well i think in the context of um and it's not to blame an individual which a lot of people have done but it's actually the responsibility of policy makers to use their judgment and discretion about what you've discussed and described which is really actually a cost benefit analysis mm -hmm. of any decision and mm -hmm. um, because obviously um people with the greatest respect that mm -hmm. are scientists or epidemiologists that or, uh, even if you think about all round execution, policy, elected representatives should really be where the responsibility lies, right? They're accountable. Yes. And there was a bit of too much outsourcing. But as it happens, Neil Ferguson had made other predictions before mm -hmm. Imperial College, and they had not come about, and there had been a track record there. So it was interesting to some people about why the decision of the government was to go with an alarmist, this is what could happen, 500,000 deaths, Mm -hmm. Admittedly, if there were no interventions, but then the intervention descriptions were... No, I don't think that was... I mean, interventions did nothing, Yeah, in my opinion. I mean, as evidenced by the fact that when we took the interventions away, nothing changed. And that's actually where we were at, at the point where, you know, people were starting to say, oh, those models are crap. And I thought, and yours are better, or, or vice versa, and I thought the better way to think of it is that here are two different hypotheses. 
the Imperial College hypothesis is that the, what we have seen is largely the effect of lockdowns and other mitigations. And my hypothesis was that it was largely, what we were seeing was largely uh, an effect of the buildup of herd immunity and seasonality. And two different hypotheses, competing hypotheses, test them. How do you test them? You take away the interventions. Yeah. At which point their hypothesis is proven to be incorrect. Yeah. Well, and, and also, I mean, herd immunity is one term that was used that was sometimes um, weaponized as though somehow people were irresponsible and wanted people just to, um, it was a very crass cavalier approach, but to say that they just wanted it to rip through everyone and kill mm -hmm. everyone. Mm -hmm. But I think your point, I mean, if we look now at the fact that we got over 6 million people waiting on the NHS, the amount of stroke, cancer, heart disease, people that were not seen, the consequential impacts in all sorts of uh, in terms of education and children, uh, families, and now the cost of living, cost of lockdown crisis. Mm. When you start, now there's a question though, because a lot of people that watch this will say, well, this is not just in Britain. And you, mm -hmm. obviously your work goes internationally. You go to a lot of international conferences, you speak with people. Many of the nations took a similar approach. I mean, you know, we saw mm -hmm. Dr. Fauci in the States and, and, and that approach. And But in Sweden, it was different, right? Mm -hmm. So Angus Tegnell and, and, mm -hmm. and, and there are, why do you think that so many uh, nations took a very similar approach? What's your... Well, I mean, I think, and this is what I was very worried about, because even if we could, in this country, could have maybe shouldered the costs of lockdown for a short period of time, um, I knew that in India and you know, other India being where I'm from, um, and Africa where I've lived, um, uh, it, it would just immediately start to cause harm. So really, at the end of the day, in some ways, it's sort of a detail what the pandemic is doing, because the harms are so huge, are so huge. I, I find it astonishing that people did not immediately recognize that at an international level. Yeah. And why did all these other countries blindly rush into this? Because I guess, first of all, sadly, people do look to um, certain countries like the UK and the US for guidance on how to proceed. And secondly, because the message was so cartoonish and appealing. You know, everything about it was, it was a, the whole thing, the whole episode is, you know, an example of a, you know, an abdication of critical thinking. And I, when I say critical thinking, it sounds, I think everyone thinks critically. The whole population, it's not just the preserve of intellectuals. Yeah, yeah. Everyone thinks critically. And, and somehow everyone suddenly became really stupid. Sorry, that sounds a bit rude. But, uh, you know, instead of the nuanced thinking that all people are capable of, everyone, including those who were supposedly trained in critical thinking, just decided, oh, that makes sense. Let's just strap a mask on and then obviously this will stop the spread. And that is a cartoonish, simplistic way of presenting, of looking at a much more complex problem. Well, I agree with you. The problem is, of course, um, when we start off with something and 
there are many reasons why we live in an anxious age and we live in a society that's concerned about risk and we think about us as being vulnerable to things rather than history making agents of change right so there's many reasons but the combination of all of those things with something that most people don't understand admittedly i take mm -hmm. your point i think they have the potential to understand it but mm -hmm. if we got up and we remember that you know the when our prime minister got up and we were talking about this we, i happened to be watching what was going on in china for quite some time and mm -hmm. i was in new york and i was watching what was happening there and discussion in where in in certain places in the states they were having outbreaks and i it was invariably with older people and mm -hmm. you could see what was happening. And, you know, the 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 ship was almost like a Petri dish, I think, the mm. uh, cruiser, the diamond cruiser, and it was mm -hmm. a lot of... You think, actually, if this is the bubonic plague or something, mm -hmm. why is not everyone dead? And why... Mm -hmm. See, so anyone can scrutinise mm -hmm. that and assess mm -hmm. it. But the problem is, of course, isn't it, surely, mm -hmm. the Prime Minister stands up and you've got the Chief Medical Officer and you've got other people that are very mm -hmm. clearly know what they're doing and you think, well, they're there to protect us, like the nation mm. state is to defend against mm -hmm. enemies. You know, surely that's where the responsibility lies with the people telling us these things, because mm -hmm. at the level of stupidity, is, is it, I mean, that's where the problem lies, is it not? If they say this is a, a mortal risk to everyone, it's an existential mm -hmm. risk, and we have to shut everything down, mm -hmm. masks, I mean, who knows what's, I mean, it's tricky, right? And if you're being oh, told yeah, that. No, no, I agree. It is very, yes, so absolutely, it's, um, it's very difficult for people to make decisions under these circumstances. And if they're told and actively kind of made to believe that this is the only way forwards and anything other than that is, um, you know, a heresy, then, then of course, they will believe that. And because heresy... they do believe, you know, you're right. People do trust the government, or, or they should, because the government is supposed to be, not, not just there to protect you, it's supposed to represent your interests. That's what government is. It's not an external body that's floating over you and telling you what to do. They are supposed to represent your interests and deliver to you the advice that you elected them to provide. And heresy is a good word mm -hmm. because people were presented as being heretical. It's it's a very interesting term because it was it comes from the uh, religious context of someone that was challenging a faith-based idea people have faith and I think that's very important in a free society that everyone can practice or not and be secular but that's where the provenance of the term comes and a heresy or a heretical in science should be anathema it, should, it shouldn't exist mm -hmm. right because you should be able to discuss anything mm -hmm. and question and challenge and either prove mm -hmm. or disprove uh, and you know we're following the science was such a dumb term mm -hmm. and so um, uh, patronizing mm -hmm. But the thing is, I suppose the question has to be, how do you think now, having seen what's happened and we've still got the we've got this COVID inquiry that isn't going to come out for five or six years. Mm -hmm. There's already lawsuits about it. And actually, mm -hmm. we've got to be honest, some people are pushing uh, lobbying it to say we should have been sooner, faster, longer, yeah. harder That's lockdowns, nonsense. right? It's not that mm -hmm. everyone's submitted their submissions mm -hmm. to it to say. Um, mm -hmm. So how what would your reflection we now what's happened we're now seeing america has just 
declared an, mm-hmm. a, a public health emergency about monkeypox. Mm-hmm. We've seen Tedros at the World Health mm-hmm. Organization overrule the vote mm-hmm. there to say, well, I don't care, you didn't vote for mm-hmm. the majority for it, we're going to have it. Mm-hmm. And people do, I mean, I know, I'd like to hear what you think about this, but a lot of people talk about the WHO and the WEF mm-hmm. as, as it happens, but about the mm-hmm. influence it has. And whether one thinks it's that much or not, when they announce an international mm-hmm. pandemic, the next moment is the White House press release statements talking about how mm-hmm. they're going to respond to this international pandemic. So how do you... We've just been through this experience. Mm-hmm. There's a danger, surely, isn't there, that we kind of just go press repeat on things? Or Yes, there is. I think there is a danger. And that's why we need to learn from this. Otherwise, we could just put it aside and pretend it didn't happen except for the fact that so many... People's lives are in tatters, mainly, of course, the, the poor and the young. Um, we could kind of otherwise say, okay, let's move on now. But we can't because this can happen easily again. And what, as, how, just a few key things. How much of an influence or positive or negative or problem do you think the World Health Organization is, for instance, in terms of these announcements now? and? You know, they've got new amendments to be able to declare things. and um, Yeah, I mean, all of, to me, a lot of that and, you know, what we've seen in academia with Fauci and Colin, I mean, you know, all, all of that, that there is a sort of, um, th- th- there's some kind of a system that's emerged, which I ha- think has to do with, um, neoliberal principles entering academia. So um, I, I think this is because academia, I, I always talk it, talk about it as the problem of the market invading the temple. You know, there's a place for the market, there's a place for the temple, but academia should never have become this sort of marketplace where you have to compete in the way that you do now for grants, for peer review. For, so all of it has become this kind of um, a marketplace. And so, unfortunately, some of these organisations are now have a very, you know, have a, a relationship with academia and, and with the funding bodies that are driving biomedical science um, that I feel does not... Um, create the correct conditions for people's views to be aired and and for the decisions to be made, particularly on behalf of um, the Global South, for example. Well, so let's talk about that a bit more. You mean that the monetization and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but are you saying that particular vested interests or significant money influences the research that's done and outcomes or other critiques of it or different views? I think it's quite complex. You know, I don't want to make it into a cartoonish thing in the way that... So I think, you know, it's just that I look around me and I see, uh, for example, you know, one of the people who wrote something against me, which was uh, deeply damaging, was the director of the Wellcome Trust. The director of the Wellcome Trust published a book in which he said, I and Carl Hennigan were responsible for 20,000 deaths, or some such absurd, not as if you, uh, because we were in a <laughs> very short Zoom cabinet meeting where we said locking down will is not the right 
solution. Let's find a different solution. Um, generally advocating uh, focus protection, I suppose. Yeah. Um, for this, he decided that it was okay for him to write a book and say we were responsible for at least 20,000 deaths, in his opinion. Now, once the director of the Wellcome Trust says that, how do you, how can we expect any academic in this country where the Wellcome Trust is, you know, they funded me, it was a you know, wonderful charity which um, gave me all sorts of opportunities. I had my first junior fellowship from them, my senior fellowship, until I got a job, they were my major funders. Uh, but if they, if the director of the Wellcome Trust makes, puts that opinion abroad, then you can see that it just becomes very, very difficult. And so when Jeremy Farras, for those that don't know, is when he did that and it became, a, you know, firstly, why do you think he did that? And there's, but that's the first question. What, okay, what? well, um, I am baffled. Um, I have known Jeremy for a very long time, very good friend, or I thought he was. Um, we've worked together, we've published papers on dengue. Um, you know, he, he's a good friend and collaborator. Uh, he knows me, he knows <laughs> what uh, motivates me. I mean, I, I, there is, I think the best answer to that is there is absolutely no explanation. Mm. And then you use that as an example of, obviously that can be damaging and someone of that position says something like that. But you also mentioned Dr. Fauci in academia. Could you explain what you mean by that when you... you, when you... Well, well, I mean, that they, they are also, you know, the sort of people high up in, you know, controlling a lot of funding. Um, and, and when one says controlling a lot of funding, obviously that is all dispersed through proper peer review and all of that. But you don't offend the chief of the, you know, you, you don't offend the chief. So it's very difficult. So within academia, um, I could see how younger people and people at different stages of their career simply could not afford to say anything. So, so this, what happens is there's one body of thought that's becoming quite, has become bigger, that will say, Big Pharma will just keep doing things that is in Big Pharma's interest. Mm -hmm. um, it won't be around the efficacy or the benefit, or it might that might be mm -hmm. part of what it is, but actually the key thing is the bottom line and profitability. And obviously there's always been a, his, uh, there's been a discussion between the market and mm -hmm. other ways of organising things and, mm -hmm. you know, how you get, mm -hmm. what's virtue, what's of benefit to people. Mm -hmm. But... Firstly, would you, because that's been around for a while, over the mm -hmm. last couple of decades, big pharma, mm -hmm. it's all bad, men in white coats usually, mm -hmm. that's what they say, and, well, not even in white coats, they're the business guys, the, mm -hmm. the scientists kind of just get paid. And they're only interested in the bottom line, and that's money, and whatever mm -hmm. they, and that's the drive. What mm -hmm. do you think about that? Is that a well, crass view, or is mm -hmm. that just accurate? Or? Well, I mean, my I don't have much experience with big pharma. I've obviously been working with, had our flu vaccine has been licensed by a small um, entrepreneur, I mean, a small farmer, <laughs> um, an entrepreneur who has set up a company which, which has um, 
uh, now IPO'd. But um, it's I have very little experience of big pharma. When I speak to people in big pharma, they are the scientists who all are all to me very sincere. So, you know, as such, I have no particular experience of big pharma. Um, in general, I think um, there is a problem with um, an unbridled profit motive. I've, uh, but that's to do with my politics rather than yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and but when you mentioned Dr. Fauci, you said that, and also with the university and research, that people you won't likely you might be less likely to get funding, or you'd be less critical of where the funding money is coming from when that situation has arisen. Some people will say that's what's happened with COVID. What happened was um, there was a situation, and then you talked about the flu vaccine, and people will say, well, this thing that came out very quickly that looked like a great achievement, and we were told by scientists and medical people that this would stop you catching this and stop you spreading it. Now they That was very unscientific because, and I think I'm on the record as saying that could never be the case, because we know from the other um, coronaviruses that we live with that they do not give you lifelong immunity, unlike measles. So, you know, as I said, there are different types of pathogens. There are bugs like measles, which you catch once and you become immune to for life. And there are others like coronavirus, which you are repeatedly infected with. Um, malaria is another example, and I've spent a lot of my life working on malaria. And it was clear at the outset that corona, that COVID belonged to this other category where natural immunity does not give you lifelong uh, protection against infection. Very likely gives you lifelong protection against severe disease and death until you get very, very old. So under those circumstances, and given that we have very few vaccines that do better than natural immunity, it was extremely unlikely that this vaccine, which was developed along a very conventional route of taking the spike protein and presenting it to the immune system, that the immunity that it induced would be uh, long lasting. So, so why were we told that, do you think? I, I, I actually have no idea. Again, I, I cannot understand. You'd have to be very hopeful that given, you know, it's, it's one of the ways that people are trying to make vaccines for some of the more difficult diseases like HIV where natural immunity doesn't do the job, is to try and artificially boost other immune responses to, to contain it. But it's th that's something we haven't really achieved yet. So most likely, it was you know, the most likely outcome of vaccination, if we, were fought, you know, if we were lucky, would be that it would do what natural infection does, which is give you long-term protection against severe disease and death, but short-term protection against infection. Uh, is it a vaccine? People ask that. They often say it's not actually a vaccine. It's an experimental mRNA. It happens to be administered as a procedure through a jab. But is it a vaccine? Yeah, it's a vaccine. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't quite understand. I mean, it depends. No, I think it's a vaccine. I had no idea. I mean, I thought the mRNA technology was was really cool when I encountered it a couple of years ago. Uh, 
well, just a year before this happened in November of 2009, I was at a conference in Barcelona and spent a long time talking to the guy from Moderna. Um, so I thought this looks really interesting. So to wait, so back to the question of Moderna and Pfizer and other people, the Pfizer report and study itself, when it it made it clear, I understand this mm -hmm. is the case, that it didn't ever claim to do any of the things that we were told by some people, except that it said it should limit and restrict severe illness, hopefully death. Yeah, well, that that's what I think was what one might have expected of it. Right. And, um, you know, th there is... But we did see Dr. Fauci mm. say that this would be the case. We heard it repeated yeah. by the president in America, and we saw yeah. people here oh, yeah. saying it. All I can say is just weird. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why you do that. I mean, if you had, if you did what, if you followed, you know, what I think is a normal scientific process, which is to say, okay, what are the characteristics of the natural immune response to other, other coronaviruses? from which this is not so significantly different that we'd expect that whole process to be completely subverted, then you would say, you know, chances are that it will do exactly what we have already observed for other coronaviruses. So there was no reason at all to expect it to provide immunity against infection, which is why at the outset I said there was no logic to vaccinating anyone who wasn't vulnerable, but particularly children and young adults. Right. No logic. So we saw that. We saw 50 million jabs to freedom in Britain uh, at one point was a claim, and then come with six-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 40-year-olds, and now we've got a situation where six-month-olds uh, in America, and here the five to 11-year-olds, there was a judicial review to challenge it. has been thrown out by the court. And... We've got to this position, and the question has got should be why? Why are people in medical and ethics and the hip principles of first do no harm and do the things that are going to be a benefit for the most amount of people? Why would and I, I? I don't know the answer to this, right? Some people have got clear answers. They're like, there's a lot well, of money to be made. Mm -hmm. Some people are getting benefit from it. There's also once you get what they might call a gravy train. Now you've got boosters every few months. I mean, every three months or four months you're taking a boot. That is a big production line of money. There's also the okay, people will say once you've committed to a certain thing to say this is our way out. Politicians don't want to look like they perhaps are silly that they went down the wrong course and the cost of lockdowns and then. The, Jabs, but it does look strange, doesn't it? When the president's had four jabs and wears masks all the time, and then he's got COVID. Again. I mean, to me, that's entirely what I would expect uh, that he would get infected despite having four jabs. And um, but why is so, that? Is it do you, does it make you less susceptible to be protected when you've had more boosters, or what? How does it work? Um, I do, I I think that one thing that's starting to become clear is that the duration of immunity after infection is shorter with the vaccine than from natural immunity. Yeah. So that that is probably the principal reason why, that, that could be one reason why people are getting reinfected so quickly, which, because that's not something I would have predicted. Um, and then there is another thing that's missing from people's thinking, which is, I alluded to, to it earlier, that exposure to the other coronaviruses gives you some degree of protection. 
certainly against disease and symptoms, to um, a new coronavirus. And I think that played a very important role in the first wave, the, the epid, what I would call the epidemic wave, the epidemic phase, when, because I think by March 2020, uh, London, for example, had already, the, the infection had spread quite considerably. But I think people had fewer symptoms. And I think now people are, getting, when they get Eps, uh, uh, Omicron, and, uh, when they get Omicron, they, they seem to be getting quite ill. And one possibility is because they're already vaccinated, it's a breakthrough infection. So if it happens very soon after you're vaccinated, then you've got the virus entering your body when it's already kind of primed to look out for the virus. But the other possibility is also that we have had a few years of not having much exposure to the other coronaviruses. So it seems to me that symptomatic illness, the frequency of symptomatic illness has increased. But, you know, one has to be quite careful in trying try to understand why. And the thing is that it's very easy to, um, you know, become suspicious as well. So, or maybe the boosters make you more likely to get infection. Certainly, it's clear now that they will give you a shorter duration of protection against reinfection. But whether they make you more sick per se, I mean, it's very difficult to disentangle that from the fact that the population now, that our overall immunity to all sorts of other viruses, other pathogens, is low because what lockdowns do is they do have a transient effect of knocking out those diseases that are already established right. and paradoxically while not doing much to alter the course of something that's incoming. Asymptomatic spreading, mm -hmm. what's the deal with that? Um, I mean, to me, it seems obvious that most a lot of the spread was asymptomatic. Okay. And yes, so I, I don't, I've actually never quite understood what the big deal there was. Of course, when you're asymptomatic, you, you may be spreading the virus, but that's the, the, you know, if you believe that most people are not at risk of severe disease and that having a large proportion of the population being immune to it, is a good thing. And when I say immune, this is another, this is a bit difficult, which, you know, in terms of understanding, and clearly a lot of epidemiologists got it wrong. A lot of epidemiologists are on the record saying, you can't get herd immunity because you lose immunity after infection. And that is not true. What happens is you have a dynamic system, much like a cistern, a water system. It's an analogy I use where the water is flowing in and out, but the level of water in the system is, which is, if you like, the level of immunity in the population, can remain the same. It doesn't, measles is a disease where the water flows out very slowly and it trickles back in slowly. Coronavirus, it trickles out quickly, comes back in. But you actually always, at any point in time, will have a very substantial proportion of the population who are immune 
to further infection. And that's a bit paradoxical, but it's true. Right. I mean, so just people that should, do you think, in your opinion, your medical mm. opinion, do you think that, um, for instance, I've asked my mum to stop taking them now. She's had four. They're offering a fifth and she has MS. Mm. And she's petrified of getting, uh, mm. because, you know, we've known some people that mm -hmm. are older and vulnerable and that's, we know mm -hmm. the story there. But I'm also concerned with her keep getting this and I'm not sure. So, but well, people who are vulnerable is my question, mm. not my mum personally. Mm. But mm. how do you see the, the booster for them? And I understand that you're saying most other people don't need the jab. I think that's what you're saying, mm -hmm. right? Because, I am. Yes, right. I am saying that people who are vulnerable, obviously, are, one would hope. I think it's very reasonable to offer, give them the jab. And I think it was, a, uh, you know, that's, that's what the value of this vaccine was, is to offer protection to those who are vulnerable. And you think, yes, you think uh, it definitely and, and so did that. So the first two, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean. Have we not passed, one question, sorry to but, interrupt uh, you, but have we passed a point where some of the people that were highly vulnerable that had got ill and with other conditions and also how people were assessing and evaluating why the cause of death happened? There were some of those things happening as well we've now seen in terms of, um, whether you died with COVID or of COVID. Yeah, well, that was a disgrace. The way it was reported was a disgrace. Right. To report who died with COVID. I mean, again, it's an insult to the intelligence of the average person. I mean, why would you want to know who died with COVID? You want to know who died of COVID. Absolutely. So I, I'm surprised got people got away with it. But do you think we've got to the bottom of that to really understand and establish who died of COVID? No, I think there are efforts underway, but it's going to take take a while to fully understand who died of COVID. But with regard to vulnerable people, there so yes, if if there is a pandemic and you know new things coming in, which to which a proportion of the population is vulnerable, you know, ideally let's shield them until either the epidemic has reached a level where you know the risk becomes much lower to the vulnerable people as it spreads. So that's one thing to remember. Um, and then the second thing is, if you can make a vaccine, that's great. At that stage, we can give them the vaccine and say, go about your normal lives. Um, if we can't make a vaccine, then that moment has to come anyway. But that moment can only be reached if a lot of people, if we get to that point of herd immunity. The, the endemic state. Now, the other thing about the vulnerable population is that they it's not a static category. People who are vulnerable, um, you know, certainly the elderly in 2000, many of them have, um, are no longer alive. And then people who were not vulnerable in 2000 are now vulnerable. But ideally, those people will have already been either naturally infected or vaccinated. So their risks of getting severe disease should be the same as with any other coronavirus. Mm. Um, I don't think continually, it, it doesn't seem to be, um, you know, it doesn't, intuitively, it, it doesn't quite um, make sense to me that you should, keep boosting people, particularly with the same, uh, you know, vaccines. I mean, as you know, with 
flu, the current strategy with flu is to keep updating the vaccine and, and offering it to, to those who become vulnerable. Um, it's, I, I hesitate to make any strong pronouncements on this because I think we just, those are things that should be on the table and people should be discussing them rationally yeah. and they should be discussing them with a view to what is best for vulnerable people. And at the moment, it seems that that discussion cannot happen because it's been so tribalized and everyone is either pro-vax or anti-vax or, you know, um, you know, it's quite fun for me to be called anti-vax when I'm actually developing a flu vaccine. But that is exactly what people call me. Yeah, and that, and I think that talks to the deficit in our ability to converse. But also we've seen social media mm -hmm. uh, pull a lot of views down that don't correspond to the, you know, the way that it's been presented to us. Ofcom have also been very specific in mm -hmm. saying that certain ideas should not be brought. So if you imagine Brexit, whatever anyone thought about Brexit, and this is not mm -hmm. the place to discuss whether people are for or against it, mm -hmm. but when that happened, you had people that mm -hmm. were arguing different views mm -hmm. that had to be done like that on television and everywhere. Mm -hmm. We did not see that no. in this situation. Mm -hmm. It was not a scientific discussion or mm -hmm. reflection. Mm -hmm. We did not see the mm -hmm. difference of policies. And in fact, even now on Twitter and Facebook mm -hmm. and all the media platforms we were on, mm -hmm. certain words, certain things said, you'll get warnings and taken down. Know, really true. established people that are credible, is you know, and also ordinary citizens. Mm. So there's this suffocating of a discussion and debate. Mm -hmm. So it's quite easy to see why if you've, perhaps also if you've not been involved in politics before, or even if you have, this thing happens two years ago, dying of COVID, with COVID, following the science. It all mm. looks a bit like, if you went in and presented this as a film script three years ago, you they think you're crazy, no one would ever believe mm -hmm. them. And here we are. Money is being made from these mm -hmm. things. You describe what happens in the academy. Mm -hmm. To what extent, I'm asking you a question, Not, I mean, it's, I think your point about nuance is really important. Mm, exactly, to, what, nothing is black and white. To what extent do you think all of these mm -hmm. trends where people can see that they can make a lot of money from things and we push it in a direction, that that then influences, there's lobbying, there's, uh, you know, it, how much do you think those interests have an influence on things versus the potential benefits of those things or other ideas? How do you see that? Or do you think it's much more of a political thing that there's a, a lack of leadership and an ability just to make robust decisions in the midst of it? Or what, how do you see it? I mean, I, I'm not very familiar with that that world, so I don't really know what's what's going on. Um, I mean, as I said, in academia, I have watched with some dismay, this sort of growth of groups who, you know, sort of cartels, if you like, supporting each other, reviewing each other's papers, giving each other grants, and, and also this establishment of an orthodoxy. As I said, even with my flu work, uh, and previously with work on malaria and bacterial infection, every time I've proposed something different, it's been met with resistance. And that's, to me, unusual. I mean, you know, I don't think that was the case 30 years ago. You said something new and people, you know, they might get quite agitated about it, but it was always received with interest. And, uh, and you certainly weren't either ignored or, you know, worse still accused of being motivated by other concerns. So, I think there's a lot we need to fix within academia. And another thing that's 
been astonishing within academia is, as you say, the sort of the flow of insults on Twitter and in The Guardian. I mean, I mean, it was just astonishing to read, you know, these sort of... Well, you talked about tribalism, and I I think, Mm. unfortunately, like, if in America is a really good example of the tragic way that now people don't see one another's fellow citizens, almost like um, uh, conductors of evil if Mm -hmm. they don't agree with one another, whether that's about free speech or gun rights or, you know, discussion around Roe versus Wade on a whole range of issues, rather than seeing one another's fellow citizens, mm. that we have a common interest, common purpose, maybe very different ideas. Yeah. But mm-hmm. So that's kind of, in a way, something. I mean, one of the things about the Together Declaration and the Association was we've always said that we want to be a broad church, lots of people. Some people vaccinated, some people are not. Some people have lots of different ideas about all sorts of things, but on key principles around freedom and liberty and rights and decision-making and rational engagement, the public being able to have a say. But cancel culture, which you're really describing now, I think, the people being venomous, Partly that's the venomous part, but also a risk people will try and attack people's positions. I mean, I, has that happened to you? If people try to say, like, go to your institution or say, you mm-hmm. know, get rid of you or whatever. Yeah. How, yeah. How, how, what, what, did you want to talk a bit about I don't that? I whether I can. Okay. Sure. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, yeah. But, but, I mean, I, you know, but the, and they've been dismissed. Right. By the institution. I mean, right. they've been... Well, that's fantastic. The due process was followed. No, I mean, that's what I was going to say is also now that I'm back in the workplace, my, you know, living, lived, or whatever they call it, the day-to-day experience of doing science is very different. All my colleagues are very supportive, whatever they might have thought or whatever opinions they might have held within the setting, particular setting I'm in, um, it's... It's all fine that there is a spirit of complete tolerance and, and um, you know, cooperation. So, of course, the other thing is this all gets twisted, I mean, twisted through social media and MSM. And, and you know, it just became completely twisted. So, and it's quite funny now for me to go on Twitter and read someone like, you know, as a statistician from... Um, Imperial College, who I think was one of the first to lead an attack against a paper we put out in 2020, March 2020, saying that we thought it had spread more widely, or it could have spread more widely, and we needed serological studies, other ways of determining whether people had had it or not, because it's likely to have spread asymptomatically. Um, And, you know, he just came out in, you know, it was venomous, as you say. But now they're all tweeting exactly the things that we said. That, you, know, <laughs> you, you can't contain it through lockdowns. You've got to. So there's been a pedal back on some of those things. Yeah. There's also a lack of taking responsibility and people being honest and transparent. Mm. And yes, it would be nice to have some apologies, actually, at this point. Yeah, no and question. some recognition and, and accountability. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I suppose well, a couple more questions because then we're coming to the latter part now. But just where did it come from? Well, obviously, SARS, not obviously, SARS is, there's a, there's a range of different things, right? We've got mm. all sorts of respiratory conditions. Where um, did this corona, did it come yes. out of a lab? I don't think so. You don't think it came from the lab, a lab no? You, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. 
What's your take? Room. What's your take? But I mean, right, I think these viruses are con continuously making incursions into the human population, and most of the time they get beaten off by the pre-existing immunity we have to related coronaviruses. So I don't quite understand this kind of Wuhan lab leak debate about whether it came out of the lab or, or you know, whether it was spotted in a cage or the same animal was spotted in a cage exactly two years ago by one of the people from the other party. I don't understand why that's become such a big um, well, perhaps because some debate. people think that it, it perhaps not that well. Mm. There's a few things. There are people in intelligence services that are saying have been saying this is where some of this first came. It was seen as a conspiracy theory. Then other people that were seen as perhaps being quite credible started saying it, and mm -hmm. then some others internationally and institutions have said that might well be the case, even at the level of the World I Health Organization. I have no disrespect for people who do think it's a lab leak, and you know have obviously done a lot of work and very credibly presented um, a position. I think that's really useful actually to say, let's thoroughly investigate this idea. It's like a kind of exercise, a forensic exercise, a, a kind of, um, you know, it's it's like a, it's a, it's an illustration of the scientific method. You know, what do we do? Let's take all the evidence and see, could they possibly have had these particular mutations all in a row? What's the likelihood? Um, I, I think that's all. That's all fine. It's an interesting exercise, but I, it, at the end of the day, it's, I don't think it's. I don't see how it would really alter some of the more crucial sort of decisions that we have to make yeah. or had to make. The the thing that I think people found astonishing is that something like which you, with the Great Barrington Declaration and your arguments, were very important to challenge that a place where we've, everyone kept saying it was unprecedented, but China and the lockdowns. So I think we once had Mexico did a few days once, but then China and the lockdowns, Wuhan, a falling man. We saw some of these things very quickly. We saw what happened in Italy, very particular images that came over. It was, there was a book that came out many years ago called Blindness. And it was like this whole experience where people have this blindness for a while, then it goes away. And in mm -hmm. a way it depicted partly the Latin American experience of some of the dictators and the political kind of um, mm -hmm. attacks and things and how they come and go and then suddenly they've gone and in a way you know you you just go perhaps if COVID had just we, we could have put it to one side when we experienced it but in many ways it seems mm -hmm. like it's been a perfect storm of many of the problems and both from the point of view of people's trust about things but also from the point of view of the, when in doubt regulate the nudge unit contempt for the public follow the science, this kind of dictatorial, do as you're told, rather than the million people who, who volunteered. And and almost like now, this question I've got for you is just like, where do we go from here? You had Great Barrington Declaration, many respected people signed it, many citizens. Well, it's, it wasn't exactly something, you know, as I said, it was, it was established, it was a fairly obvious and established way of dealing with the, the, this, the, this sort of a situation, which we just simply wanted to be debated out there. Just going back to the lab leak for a moment, I think one of the things about the lab leak is that, which could explain the current, the behavior, some of what emerged, is that the potential for it to have been a lab leak did make a lot of people in high places like Fauci and Colin very nervous. So I think that put them on the back foot right at the outset.
and therefore they felt this sort of need to um, kind of group themselves, you know, to, to form this sort of, to, to kind of, you know, form, to create a sort of resistance. That I, th I think it changed, I, I wonder if that made them more defensive, I guess is what I'm right. looking for. Uh, and that, and then they just sort of everything that happened, they saw as an attack, um, which is really unfortunate. Maybe I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it's interesting when you're in the states. Um, I, you know, I, I very much know. So if you're in New York, mm -hmm. <laughs> the city and the state of freedom, where people have for years celebrated their independence and their robust kind of freedom, mm. and all of a sudden you've got a situation where they're masking toddlers and they want to vaccinate children mm -hmm. and you've got to have vaccine passports to get into places. Mm -hmm. And people talk about my body, my choice, but mandates are free mm -hmm. willy-nilly. And um, it is kind of terrifying when you see some of the videos that they put out on TV and then you've got like public health advisors that are uh, encouraging the use of masks for two-year-olds and below. And you wonder how how is it? This is the thing about some things we talk about flat earthers and science and some established understanding. How is it that scientists and this day and age can still have? Is it that they're just partisans? Some people say they've been paid off. There's, a, but I don't, have, I don't. I don't think that so much. It's mm. like, but because, but how is it possible that you can have someone who's beyond the level of PhD level that is? obviously smart, they can be this kind of, but this is the policy we're going to do and we're going to impose it on you. I mean, what, what's your take on that? Um, I don't know why they would coalesce around irrational policies. I personally don't have, I don't think I share your views about bodily autonomy or mandates because I think that if, what I mean, as a society, you decide what is necessary. So for me... I would have no problem mandating measles vaccines. I think they do protect the individual. They protect... It, it's something that falls to me very much within the bounds of a social contract. If you're going to live in this society, that's what you do. That those, it's, That's how it is. So that's not even a mandate. It's an agreement. It's but just on agreement. that, to jump in there for a second, mm. um, that's something... So although there was a lot of discussion around the MMR jab and mm. the, the bundling of it, the measles jab now, to my understanding, is fairly... I mean, as it happens when I was younger, we all got those illnesses. Yeah, Obviously, so, yeah. if, it's, if, it's mm. if you're older, it become very dangerous. It can, but No, measles kills a million children a year. I mean, it will this year. It has gone down from a million to a quarter of a million. But is that internationally? Internationally, right. yes. And mm. where is that primarily? Is in that... sub-Saharan Africa. And why is that? Is it specifically because of the measles or is it because of the other things that go with no, it? No, measles is a deadly, deadly disease. Um, why are the children there dying of it? But Because then the risk... So, first of all, because they don't get vaccinated, not all of them. Secondly, it's very... You cannot vaccinate against measles while you still have antibodies from your mother against measles. So you can't really give the vaccine before nine months of age, really. And here, that's fine. So we vaccinate our kids around a year, 12 to 18, uh, 15 months, first MMR. And that's fine because the likelihood of them getting being exposed to measles between when they lose their maternal antibodies and getting the shot is really zero. That's not true in sub-Saharan Africa where it's still highly prevalent. So 
a lot of kids will get measles and die before they can be vaccinated. But these are all really... So is that specifically mm -hmm. to do with the actual illness, not to do with other things like their socioeconomic position? No, or their... Roald Dahl's daughter died of measles. Lots of people died, used to die of measles. Right. We must not, we should be vaccinated. As a society, we should agree to vaccinate our children against measles. So that's the question, isn't it? Mm -hmm. How one does that? Yeah. Because just on that point, and mm -hmm. one other question, I mean, how well established is the measles vaccination, let's say, compared to... The COVID vaccination as a question. So, is oh. it something? That's, how long has it been around for? Yeah, no, measles. It's it's safe, effective, and it protects you against infection. And measles is is yeah. a problem for young children. Right. So COVID in that is not. Yes. Yeah, so in that where well, COVID mm -hmm. is not, you just said. Mm -hmm. So in that context, because my uncle um, mm -hmm. takes some medicine because he's got an autoimmune condition, and on it it tells you all the things that it could damage from mm -hmm. your liver to your kidney. But it also he knows that he makes an assessment. And he says, I know if you read all this, you probably wouldn't want to take it, but I know that if I don't take it, what's going to happen? So I take those risks. So there's a kind of recognition of, of mm -hmm. that. Now, what you I think what you're saying, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Mm -hmm. If society recognizes the cost benefit mm -hmm. of this, yes. then it's worth saying we should have it for exactly. everyone. Mm -hmm. That is different though mm -hmm. to mandating completely. Right. Yeah. No, so that's what I'm saying. Because you've been interpreted as saying no. that you would mandate things because there have been some people that have posted about things mm. to us. So I just want, yeah, that's yeah. a good clarification. No, I mean, I think that's the thing, that mandates... If we really understand that government is representing us and if we think of it as, you know, a bunch of people getting together and, you know, it's all, I, think, I always find it easy, I mean, helpful to sort of think of it as a village or something. You know, a bunch of people getting together and deciding, what should we do? Shall we vaccinate all our children against measles? Yes, let's do that. And then what you don't want is someone to say, well, I'm not going to vaccinate my kid against measles. Uh, I don't care. And then they enjoy the benefits of everyone else having, and that's uh, having vaccinated their kid because their kid will be protected because the risk of measles will be low. And that is not how community, it's not communitarian. However, among those kids, there might be one kid who is immunocompromised and who can't get the measles vaccine. And that kid should not get the measles vaccine and the others should, because that will then protect that kid. But these are simple communitarian principles. I don't think they have to do with left or right or anything you know, quite so profound. It's well, uh, yeah. So the, just on the left, right, or whatever that means anymore today, mm. um, we didn't really have an opposition, did we? And I mean, I, I'm not sure there was a... But mm. historically, you might say that the Conservatives would have been of the centre and the right, whatever the mm. right's been used a lot for terms mm. these days, mm. and Labour would have been left and centre, mm. right? Mm. That was a historical... Yes. Mm. But it sounded like, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but that the, the, the opposition... Or even more wedded to pro be go longer, mm -hmm. you're being mm -hmm. irresponsible for mm -hmm. now, stopping mm -hmm. some of this. And yeah. what it's, is that about, in your opinion? A complete lack of critical thinking. Just essentially, it seemed to me Labour's only agenda was to prove the Conservatives wrong or that they were doing something poorly. So when it came to lockdowns, instead of considering maybe lockdowns themselves are not right. It was, oh, you should have locked down earlier. 
But I, I don't see any, I could not see anything. And how do you think they could not understand that the poorest in society, you talked mm. about the yeah. South and the North, mm. but even within Britain, yeah, within it would Britain, be the most, I mean, obviously also one thing that mm. I never understood from day one is why the working class seemed to be out working all the mm. time and and people, and you could have this thing and you could be out doing things, but other people yeah, because, stay at home and yet still, how's that mitigating? In fact, it just didn't make know, any it, sense. Yeah, I mean, what we had was a, was a focused protection of the elite. That's what we actually did in the name of lockdown. And then, of course, the people who opposed focus protection said it wasn't possible, whereas they, in fact, themselves were participating in focus protection of themselves. My little hunch on what has happened in the last three decades, and we see it in America with the Democrats as well and the Republicans, is that many have abandoned the idea that the public, ordinary people are rational, all the things you said at the start, mm. are capable of understanding things, capable of changing things in a beneficial mm -hmm. way. I think that the what is seen as being the left or Labour in Britain has retreated from the idea of ordinary people and they now see them as a problem. Mm. And that disdain and contempt that mm -hmm. they should be regulated or, mm -hmm. and I think it's a huge problem for anyone that maybe mm -hmm. doesn't agree with certain economic policies or whatever mm -hmm. and they're looking, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of people in Britain that are homeless today politically. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we can all agree on that. I suppose my question to you is we're nearing the end of mm. this um, is, because uh, we could go on forever and mm. I, it's really brilliant to talk to you, is it seems to me, I'm very nervous, my son says to me, what's going to happen now? In, mm. in the States, he's, he, they missed almost two years of schooling mm. in many places. Just to say, Ron DeSantis has had a different policy, a bit like Sweden mm -hmm. and Europe, in, in Florida, right? And mm -hmm. we've got some different data now mm -hmm. and seeing things, but... Monkeypox is a now public health emergency in America, right? Whatever mm. that means, right? Mm. And then we're now looking at, is that going to impact schools? And there are many people here that are very concerned about what every year the NHS says mm. we're in crisis, every mm. winter, autumn's coming mm. along, we've got a cost of living mm. crisis and the NHS. Mm. And people are saying seriously, like the head of mm. um, NHS providers, who used to be at the RSA, mm. if you take that, well, let's mm. have maybe masks indoors and we do. And you think... Are we going to go through Groundhog Day all, all over again? It's very worrying. Isn't it? And how do we, in your opinion, and how mm. can we all help each other? Mm. And what can people at home do? I mean, obviously, mm. you're, you've done the Great Barons Declaration was a huge inspiration to many people, and mm. your work has been very important. What can people do? How do you see what we can all do to have some common sense and some calm, rational, like transparency, cost benefit analysis. How do we put pressure on as much as possible to make sure that happens and we don't just get endless restrictions and lockdowns and masking? Well, I think that what's on our side here is that it is rational. What what or what we're proposing is I think rational. So, you know, that there, there are other um, levels at which one might have a discourse. So, for example, just go back to the vaccine. Let's say the vaccine did provide long-term protection against infection, but had a certain cost or, or the cost was unknown. Should we still vaccinate children? Now that becomes an ethical issue rather than a rational issue. But fortunately, and then that the discussion is more complex. But actually most of these ideas can now be dismissed at a logical, rational level. Masks aren't gonna make any difference. So we can show that. The epidemic, the virus is now in an endemic state. It's bobbing up and down as you would expect it to 
the numbers infected are entirely commensurate with what a very simple model would give you. They, it would say you would expect, you know, 5% of people to be carrying the virus at any point in time, obviously going down, sometimes rising. So none of these, th everything that's happening can be explained within a very rational framework. And I think the best we can do, or best I can do, is just to offer that rational framework for the general public who are completely capable, in my opinion, of absorbing it. Uh, the costs of lockdown are sadly already evident in, in ways that are impossible to ignore. So that cost-benefit seesaw in which the, the costs of lockdown are so, it's like a big boulder at the end of, at one end. That's, I think, hopefully people will perceive that. And the sad truth is people are just going to, it's going to experience, they're going to experience it materially. Absolutely. Is, and that is the tragedy. of With now, many people don't necessarily associate the public with the cost of living crisis and lockdowns. And how do you feel about that? Surely it's quite important that people see the connection. Yes, um, I believe the cost of living crisis is a direct result of the lockdown policies. And um, I'm rather surprised that people don't see it that way. I mean, that is exactly what we were warning of, is that this money, which should be pumped into making people's lives better, is going towards protecting a small elite. So on that note, I want to thank you, Sanetra Gupta, for coming in. It's been brilliant. Um, and also, should be a... a, a a big shot across the bows to everyone. Like, enjoy the summer. As we record this today, the front pages are talking all about uh, the cost of living, cost of lockdown crisis, talking about inflation coming, talking about the kind of costs that our heating and fuel are going to mean um, and energy prices. We've got Axe the Tax uh, as a campaign. We've also got forthcoming What's the Plan for the NHS. Uh, we've got some new things coming up. On the 1st September, we're going to have a big event um, which we'll tell you more about. We'd love you to become a member of the Together uh, Association so we can carry on doing the kind of things that we're doing. And if you like what we're doing, please support us and get involved. We've also got regional ambassadors. And just to final, finally echo your point, Professor Sanetra Gupta, that if we want to see a change, it's going to be up to us. And the public, Together Association's view is that the public is where the honesty and transparency comes. Ordinary people having their voices heard. We know that when we campaign and we get MPs lobbied, that when we write to them, we email them and call them, when we get councillors to hear from us, when we get the CEOs of trusts, when we get the um, chairs of university boards up and down the country, when we do that and we mobilise and we get people involved, friends, neighbours, colleagues, we have an impact. We saw what happened with both the, the mandates and the passport, the vaccine passports discussion. The more that we can get people engaged in this discussion, the better. So you can go out and convince some friends and people to get involved. We're going to have a difficult autumn and winter, I think, whatever happens. The consequences of lockdowns and the policies are going to be stay with us. The question is what we're going to do about it now. So thank you very much, Professor Gupta, uh, and we'll see you all soon at the next Together Talks podcast.